So my current job is, is a professor of finance at London Business School, but before my life of poverty, I actually had a proper job. Um, so I was at Morgan Stanley for a couple of years, initially in London doing investment banking, and then in New York City doing sales and trading. And, and my time at Morgan Stanley taught me two things. So one thing it taught me was that there's always going to be people around who are smarter than you. So there were people smarter than me in terms of their knowledge of finance academically. There were people smarter than me in terms of their business savviness. And there were people smarter than me in terms of their emotional intelligence, their ability to jive with the client. So a traditional way that people think about choosing a career is to think about what you are skilled at. And obviously skills do matter, but that can't be the only thing because there will always be people more skilled at you and that, at that particular task. There's smart people all around the world. Now, the second thing I learned at Morgan Stanley is that it's impossible to be truly great at something unless you're willing to devote a lot of time to it. So when I was doing sales and trading in New York, there was a managing director called Dennis, and he met all the summer associates and said to us, if you are not reading Barron's at the weekend, you need to look yourself in the mirror and ask, is this really the job for you? And I didn't even know what Barron's was. And then I actually looked it up and it was an investing magazine. And, and I was actually quite upset with what Dennis said because I thought, well, that's just too intense, right? During the week, I'm already working on investing. In my spare time, I want to play sports or play music. I don't want to read another investing newsletter. But Dennis was absolutely right, right? I just wasn't passionate about investing. I was interested in investing. But there's a big difference between being interested in something and being passionate about something. So had I stayed in that career, I would have not been successful. Why? Because there were other people who were just willing to work harder than me and read up on investing at the weekend. Not necessarily to get ahead, but they just loved investing. And so the second thing that people often think about to choose a career is on the opportunities. Right? So people might say nowadays, fintech, that's a great thing to go into. But other people know those opportunities. Other people can see the fact that financial technology is a big area. And if they're willing to work harder at that because they care more about it, then they will grab those opportunities, not you. And so that's why I wanted to give today's talk on finding purpose in your career. And this talk is, is aimed at, at two sets of people. So there might be some people thinking about what to go into or maybe a career switch. But even those who are really satisfied within their current career, how to put it into practice, and that's going to be the second half of my talk. But I'm going to first focus on this choosing a career aspect, but what does it actually mean to choose a career based on purpose? Right, because there's lots of great talks on purpose, right? Rather than coming and, and seeing me in this cold winter's evening, you could have watched a talk by somebody much more prominent than myself, for example, Steve Jobs' talk when he gave a graduation speech on Stanford. And those talks about fulfilling your purpose, they are really inspiring. But I hear often two main criticisms about such talks. The first is they might be um, unrealistic, right? So the idea of pursue your purpose, right? That preaches well from the pulpit when you are the CEO of Apple and worth a couple of billion dollars, right? But what happens if you're somebody who's just graduated from university or business school with a lot of student debt? or you need to live in London and it's just expensive, you're trying to buy a house. Right? Can we really think 
about purpose when there are important financial needs. So what I want to try to show today is that we can have realism, that even lucrative careers can also be very purposeful and meaningful. And the second criticism I often hear about these such talks is it's impractical. Right? It sounds great about follow your dreams and pursue your purpose and follow your passion, but how do you actually put this into practice if you don't even know what your purpose is? So what I want to start with is asking three questions, which I think will hopefully help some of you think about what your purpose might be. And so when I go through these three questions, try and think about what the answers to those questions are. So the first question I'd like to ask is, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Now, you might think, well, that's not a new question. Right? That's asked at most interviews. And you might think, well, I know the answer to this question. I want to be a managing director at Goldman Sachs. I want to be a partner at McKinsey. Or maybe I want to be vice president of product at a company that actually makes something. Right? But when I'm asking you this question, I'm not asking you this in terms of your job title. I'm asking you this in terms of what will your days be like? What will wake you up in the morning? What you, will you make you tick? Because your career, if it's to be truly fulfilling, is not about what you do. It's not about your job title, but it's about who you are. OK, that sounds like idealistic and, and lofty, so let me give you a, a concrete example. So let's say what you want to do um, is you'd like to be a managing director at Goldman Sachs or a partner at McKinsey. So that is an advisor. So during the day, you are helping your clients solve their toughest problems. So a company comes to you and is in trouble. They ask, should we raise debt? Should we issue equity? Should we sell a division? Should we um, even put ourselves up for sale? And you are trusted to give that client the advice which is going to be the best for them, even if it doesn't maximize your fee income. But I said it's about who you are. So this means that you are an advisor in your time outside of work. So as I often talk about to, to my students at London Business School, right, there are people within London Business School who love being trusted advisors. What does that mean? Well, they're divided into study groups, and each study group, they work together on problems. Now, there are people within each study group whose job it is to hold the rest of the study group to account. They might have these tough conversations, like, you're not really pulling your weight on these assignments, or you're not showing up on time, you're, you're constantly late, or when you're here, you're physically present, but you're mentally absent. And those conversations are really tough, uncomfortable conversations to have. Now, some people just feel really awkward at having those conversations. And if so, maybe a career as an advisor might not be for you, even though the title of managing director at, at Goldman Sachs or partner at McKinsey seems really attractive. But there are the people who do feel it is their purpose in giving honest advice to people. That's what makes them tick. That's what wakes them up in the morning. And it may well mean that when they do this job, right, they do like being able to say to a client, right, you know this strategy that you, you, you did. This, the market is just not buying it. Um, this is something that you're going to have to change. So that's one type of career which could be truly purposeful. What about a second one? What about an investor? So I'm using a lot of business careers just because this is a, a business skills lecture, but I think you can apply this to, to many non-business careers. So what does an investor do? Let's take private equity. 
Right, so this is a, a particularly unpopular career, which is maligned a lot by the general public. But what does private equity do? You're buying a company which is so unloved by its current owners that they're putting it up for sale. And you are seeing potential in this company that nobody else sees. And you think, well, if I could turn this company around, then this company could become a great company. So that's what it means to be an investor. But what does it mean to be an investor in your spare time? Well, maybe some of you play in sports teams. And in that sports team, right, there might be some people who are new to the sport. And the temptation might be to keep those people on the bench and just have uh, the, the best players playing all the time. It takes a lot of time to develop and nurture somebody who's new to a particular sport. Now, not everybody has that patience. That's not right or wrong. It's just different personalities. But those who don't like so much investing in people, right, maybe you'd make a great day trader, but you wouldn't make a great investor. The types of people who will try and buy companies, see potential in those companies that nobody else sees, and then work with those companies to allow them to fulfill their potential. So those who like to invest in other people, right? Maybe other people playing their sports team or, or their music band or, or anything else. Those are also people that might feel investing to be a career which is truly fulfilling as well as being something which is, is, is financially secure. What about those who actually want to start a business? Let's say you want to be an, an entrepreneur. Now, I'll just tell a little story from one of my most successful students who started a business. His name is Will Shu, who, who founded Deliveroo, which um, you all know is worth over a billion dollars. Now, he told me a story um, where, one, when he was at Wharton, which is where I used to be a professor, there was one of his classmates who always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Right, whenever you met him, he'd tell you his 40 business ideas of the businesses he would start up. And then when he left Wharton, he chose to go with one of those businesses. And it was uh, like an online marketplace for, for pet toys. It was like an Etsy for pets. And then one year after graduating from Wharton, Will met this student again and asked, how's your business doing? And he said, I've jacked it in. And Will was really surprised because this entrepreneur was, was so excited about having a business. But he answered, I figured out I just don't like dogs. So this supposedly passionate entrepreneur, right, why did he start that company? It wasn't because he cared about the product that he was selling. It was he just wanted the job title of entrepreneur. He liked going to cocktail parties and saying, I have my own business. He cared much more about the job title rather than what he was actually doing. So you might think, well, why did Will Shu found Deliveroo? Well, it was because he was truly passionate about delivering food. What? You can be passionate about curing cancer. You can be passionate about solving climate change. But how can you be passionate about delivering food? Well, this is where his passion came from. So he also used to be an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, actually started at the same time as me, but he was in New York, I was in London, we never met until Wharton. And the job as an investment banker is, is really, really tough. You work really, really long hours. But those of you who've been in this industry, you'll know the answer to this question. What is the one thing that you look forward to every day? It's free food. Right, so if you stay in the office after 8 p.m., which is always going to be the case in investment banking, what you get is you, you're able to order dinner and um, charge it to, to, the, to the company. And in New York City, that was a real treat because you have this 
platform called Seamless, and you can order sushi or Italian or Mexican, and you could spend 15 minutes away from your desk eating this with, with your fellow analysts, and this was something to look forward to. And then Will, in his third year, he, he moved to, to London, to Canary Wharf, and all of the stereotypes that he'd heard about British food, they all came true. Right, so rather than choosing between sushi and Mexican, right, the options were Domino's Pizza, there was a Chinese takeaway called Good Friend and a Mediterranean called First Edition, and that's all there was. And that's why Will got really passionate about delivering food, right, because he and his friends and thousands of young people fresh out of university on the bottom rung of the ladder trying to work hard uh, and get up uh, their career, right, they couldn't even have a decent meal. And so this was what allowed made him actually not accept an offer from a hedge fund, which is what he had after leaving um, Wharton, but to come over to London and deliver food. Literally deliver food, right? Because for the first nine months, he was actually a delivery person delivering the food to his clients. And that's actually how he got a lot of business to start with, is that his, um, some of his customers were his former classmates at Wharton who would order from delivery just to make him have to deliver the food to them. So <laughs> the boot was the other foot that he was now their, their delivery person. And, but, but I think this is important because th this also just means that this is a fundamental part of the business. So, so delivery, like any gig economy business, faces fundamental challenges about how they treat their workers. And I'm not sort of trivialising these challenges, but somebody who is willing to work for nine months delivering food, and still as the CEO of a billion dollar company, tries to spend one day, one shift a week doing this, I think he at least is able to empathise partly with those problems. Indeed, when I took uh, my London Business School students to Deliveroo, he said, Alex, you want to learn about my business? Well, you get on your bike and deliver food yourself. And, and that's indeed what I, I had to do with my students to understand the business. Now, why I think this is so important is that many people here will be successful and you'll get to the top. Now, before you get to the top, you don't really need to think about purpose. Because going back to my opening question, what wakes you up in the morning, what makes you tick, is getting that next promotion. Right? That motivates you. But what happens when you are at the top and you no longer have that motivation, that's where purpose really matters. So, so there is a reason why midlife crises happen in midlife, because after people have gone to the top, they might actually realise that they've climbed the wrong mountain. So I think this is hopefully something which is valuable to think about right now. So that's the first question. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Not in terms of your, your title, but what will you actually do? What will um, your days be like? The second thing I'd like to ask is what do you do in your spare time? Now, I ask this because what you choose to do in your spare time just reveals what you care about because you're doing this voluntarily. But you might think, well, this is a, not a very helpful question because maybe in my spare time I play football, but nobody here is going to be a professional footballer. Or I'm a, I play music, but nobody here is going to be a professional musician. But I think this is useful still for many aspects of career choice. So as a finance professor, one of the main questions I get asked by students is, do I start on the buy side or the sell side? So what does that mean? So when I was in investment banking advising other companies, the dream was to be called by a headhunter and be moved to the buy side where you're in private equity. You were actually buying the companies rather than just being an advisor. 
or when I was doing sales and trading, the dream was to be called by a hedge fund to move you over to the buy side. So most people think, oh, being the person who's buying stuff, right, that's much better than being a salesperson. And this applies to far more than just finance careers, right, within a company, do you want to work in operations or sales? Now, being on the buy side may well be good for many people, but I believe that actually for many people, doing something with a sales element is truly fulfilling. Why? Because this is what I see a lot of people doing in their spare time. So some things that people do in their spare time is they, they will make captain sports teams, and that will have an element of selling, right? You're trying to introduce and get um, people excited about a sport which they might have never played before. But not everybody is a captain. So what happens if you just play in a team or you play in a band? Well, there's an element of what I call tribalism to those hobbies. So what do this means is you're part of a small team and you really care about how that rest of that team does. For example, in a, a football team, it might be that you're on the bench or maybe you're a defender, the team scores a goal. You're not involved in that, but you're celebrating with everybody else. Or to music, right, my um, favorite singer is Bruce Springsteen. And he was asked, what still drives you? Well, you've played Madison Square Gardens hundreds of times. You've sold so many records, you're fantastically wealthy. You've ticked so many things off your bucket list. And what he replied is why he loves performing is he loves being on stage with Clarence Clements. That was his saxophonist. He said, when I'm on stage, even if I'm just silent and I see Clarence do his sax solo, I just feel so much fulfillment to be part of his team, part of his tribe. So what does that mean in terms of, of careers? Well, let's say you are in a sales type career. Maybe you are the manager director of Goldman Sachs. So what you do in those careers is you take your team, you take your tribe to the client and sell to them. It's a bit like taking a sports team to an away game or taking your band on, on the road. And remember, one day, most people will be the head of that team. You'll be the manager director. And you might choose not to give the entire presentation yourself. You might ask the vice president or the associate to give part of the pitch. And she nails that pitch. She crushes that pitch. She does an amazing job. And you feel the same pride that Bruce Springsteen feels when he is on stage, but not performing, but just let Clarence Clemens play his sax solo. And this is not just sort of a, a nice story that I'm telling you because it sounds nice, but this is something where I, I heard this from a managing director of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, why he was um, still working even though he'd made, far to, uh, made more, more than enough money to retire because he loved being that, taking his tribe on the road and seeing the rest of his team perform. Third question is, what are your values? So what I mean by values is what you center your life around, right? what you'd like people to remember you by. If somebody was to write a eulogy about you, what would you like them to, to mention? And uh, the word eulogy is important because uh, some of you might know this book called The Road to Character by David Brooks, where he contrasts resume values, which are things that you would put on your resume, right? This is a, he's a great deal maker or something versus eulogy values, which are personal. 
and, and different people will have different values, right? And so no two people will have the same, but just to think about what are your values, what are the things that you'd like people to remember you by? And sometimes these values could be internal, growth-related, right? They don't need to relate to a higher purpose or anything. They could be purely something internal. Like, I know some tax lawyers who just love doing tax law because it's really complicated, and it's something that they really like to solve difficult problems. But also values will have an external component because people just naturally are, are social beings. This is how we evolved and seek a cause greater than themselves, such as helping clients with the most difficult problems. And so when you write these values, then as Greg Mankiw, the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the US said, the secret to a happy life, find out what you like to do and then find someone who will pay you to do it. So once you've come up your values, find a job that's consistent. Now, that just seems so simplistic, right, and sort of rather sugary and saccharine, because you might think that some of the most sort of well-rewarded mercenary careers, lucrative careers, are valueless. But hopefully what I've done over the course of the opening 20 minutes is to convince you that that's not true, is that there's careers which are financially lucrative, which can be very fulfilling and very consistent with values. So let's say your value is I will always be trusted to tell the truth, right? Anything which is an advisory career, such as banking or outside of, of this, it would be something like such, such as teaching, that's something which can provide a huge amount of fulfillment. Now, in investment banking, there are some negatives to that, right? It's very hierarchical, but there are some people who might have the value, I will always respect authority. So out of my business students, the ones with military backgrounds actually end up doing really well in investment banking. Well, you might think, well, how can this be? Right? They don't have sort of the financial background, but their character in terms of just respecting authority in the hierarchy, being willing to roll their sleeves up and work hard, that's what makes them succeed, even though you might think they don't have as strong a financial background. Now, that's not for everybody. So if your, your value was, uh, I would always like to seek opportunities to, um, to be creative and to express myself, maybe being in a large hierarchical environment is not going to be for that. But that's why there's no one best career. Think about what the values are and then see which careers might fit them best. So another way of thinking about values is, um, is to think about a personal mission statement which I mentioned in my last lecture, Time Management in the Digital Age. And if you didn't see that, there's the transcripts outside and on the web, and also you can see, watch the video on the web. But this is something that Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, recommends. So a mission statement is what you'd like to get out of life. And actually, many of you may have already written this personal mission statement. So maybe on your UCAS application, if you were to apply to, say, medicine, like you would explain why you want to be a doctor. Or maybe in your interview within a company, right, they'll say, well, why do you want this job? And, and people will say, oh, I, I think this job is hugely purposeful. I'd like to make a huge difference to clients. Right, well, is that a bait and switch where you say something nice in order to get the job, whereas in what actually matters is, is the financial motives? Or is that that's something that people truly believe in uh, and if so, well, that is uh, 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 the key to, and then the, the route to a purposeful career. And I think this is very useful because even if you're happy in your chosen career and you don't think of switching, 
right, you still have discretion as to what to do within your career. Well, I'm now about to transition into the putting it into practice element. And I might just best illustrate this with, with my own personal mission statement, which I said last time was to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business. So this is why for me now as a professor at London Business School, most of my time is not spent doing pure academic research like it might be for, for many other academics, but trying to engage with practitioners and policymakers and people outside finance, which is why I really enjoy uh, giving lectures like this. So even if you don't intend to switch your career, just thinking about a personal mission statement that will tell you out of all the activities on your plate, which might be the ones that you'd like to choose to focus on. So just one more slide before I get into the putting it into practice is that the answers to the three questions that I've asked will be unique. And think of that as your skill, your talent, your comparative advantage. If you just care more about a particular career, because this is something consistent with what you do in your spare time, this is what you'd like your days to be like, that's something which means that that career is at the sweet spot. So when I was at university, and, and even now I see the students at London Business School, there's so much in terms of comparison, right? There's the view that there's one best career here, and if my classmates are recruiting for that career, let me recruit that for that as well, otherwise I'm gonna miss out. There's the fear of missing out or FOMO, which is a very common phenomenon. But in fact, if you think, well, actually, I have particular passions and talents and commemorative advantages, then I will go for a different career. And maybe it's not the one that everybody else is going for, but this is, for me, what I would feel really passionate about doing. OK, so the second part of the talk is on to putting it into practice. And hopefully, this will be applicable even to those who don't think about switching but are very happy in what they're doing at the moment. I've got about five points. I'll see how many I, I get through. So the first is never forget the purpose of your, of your vocation. So what I did in, in, the, in the first 25 minutes is I talked about what I think to be the true fulfilling purpose of things such as investment banking, right? Giving clients trusted advice or private equity, finding potential in companies that nobody else sees. But when the rubber hits the road, right, it's easy to forget about that. In jobs, you get really mundane tasks, you've got difficult clients and difficult bosses. So how do we deal with this? Well, I think it's always to try to keep in mind what you told yourself was the purpose when you went into that career. So we often think about just finding a purposeful job, as if it's something that we find, we overturn a rock and we find. But I think it's something where you can take a job and make it purposeful. So there's this famous, um, uh, um, story where three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? One of them says, I'm laying bricks. Well, that's what they're literally doing in terms of a job. Another says, I'm building a church, which is a career. And the third is saying, I'm building the house of God, which is a calling. Now, this is not meant to be religious, right? But just to say that whatever you're doing, right, you can see the same job, but with different aspects of it. Are you just bricklaying or building a house or, or building a church? And so I think this matters even for the most mundane tasks, because when the rubber hits the road, a lot of tasks are boring. So if you're in a, a job, say, in banking, you're having to do a PowerPoint presentation, just think about how does this actually contribute to society? Is this just a PowerPoint presentation? Or is this something where, through doing it, you'll help clients overcome a very difficult situation? And this is something I had to think about last week, because I, all my teaching at LBS is, is um, is focused on November, I had to give the same lecture 
eight times a week. So it's a three-hour lecture, presenting it eight, eight times the very few jokes that I do have. I've forgotten whether I've actually given them in that lecture. But I could also just see this and, and say, well, this PowerPoint presentation through my lecture, I'm getting to teach some of the smartest young people in the world. It's a huge privilege to be able to do this. And so that's what gave me energy, even the eighth time of giving the same lecture. Now, some of you might sort of, uh, this might jar with some of you, because you, you might think, well, am I asking you to delude yourselves? Right? You're getting a boring task, and I'm saying, well, let's try to trick myself into thinking that this task actually contributes to society. I'm actually not. So this is not like the emperor's new clothes, where somebody doesn't have clothes and you're trying to delude yourself that you do. All I'm asking you to do is to the same, very same reasons that you probably gave when you were interviewing for that position as to why you wanted the job, just always try to think about those reasons. And those are true reasons, because those are reasons that you yourself gave. Right? And this is part of the idea that contentment is a discipline. Right? In life, there are happy people and there are unhappy people. And you think, well, happy people, just good luck happened to them. And unhappy people, they just got unlucky. But there's a lot of research by people who know this field much more than me, psychology, which actually shows that contentment is, is a discipline. It's a choice. Happy people will always think about the situation in, in positive ways. And so just to constantly remind yourself of the purpose of, of, of your vocation, that's something where then it will just become natural that when you get tasks which might seem difficult, you might actually end up seeing, well, there is a bigger purpose to this, even in the most mundane tasks. So um, there's two great TED Talks by Dan Gilbert and, and, and Sean Aker on this. Just by changing your attitude, seeing the glass as half full, not, em not half empty, that changes the neuroplasticity of the brain. It changes the way that the brain works and then actually leads to greater contentment. And they've done these experiments in work settings. Let me give you another just a concrete example, because you might look at this and think, well, is this lofty? Is this actually realistic? So um, in academia, you have this concept called tenure, where after six years, right, you either get given tenure, which is a job for life from which you can never be fired, or you get fired immediately. Right? So it's completely binary. You get the best possible outcome or, or the worst possible outcome. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. So when I came up for tenure at Wharton, what you have to do is you have to give all the research papers you've written there. And they make you not just email them but they also make you print them out in hard copy and put them in chronological order. And as I walked over with this stack of paper and I gave it to the administrative assistant who would be running the process, I realised that this was the first time in my life I'd held my life's work in two hands. And as I flicked through the papers in chronological order, from the thesis I wrote at MIT to the early papers I wrote on investors at Wharton to the papers at executive pay, which I wrote at the end, I realized I wrote those papers not to get tenure, not to get approval by some external committee, but because I truly cared about those topics. Right? I wanted, I was excited about using rigorous research to influence the practice of business. I thought executive pay and investor stewardship were important topics for the real world, and that's why I wrote them. And I can honestly say that when I gave right, this packet to the administrative assistant, even though for the next six months that it took them to make the decision, I, was, I had massive uncertainty, I, I was completely calm with this, because I realized that I wasn't actually waiting on the approval of those people. 
And yes, it worked out well for me in the end, but maybe I might not have got tenure. I might have got fired, and I might have ended up at another school, maybe a good state school, let's say University of North Carolina. But if the purpose of a professor is the creation and dissemination of knowledge, that's something that I could have done equally well at the University of North Carolina as Wharton. Right, the reason why I loved that job at Wharton wasn't to have the business card and say, look, I'm a professor at Wharton, but because I got to do research and teaching, and that's something you can do anywhere. So even when I was facing the possibility of being fired and not getting tenure, that was something which, which actually reduced a lot of uncertainty, was just thinking about the purpose, and that was a purpose I could have done at any other university. So the second thing to think about is to think about to acknowledge that you're running a different race. If indeed what's driving you in this career is actually purpose rather than just promotion or financial quantitative traditional measures of success, you're running a different race from other people who might have that as the primary goal. Now, there is a lot of research by psychologists as well on what they call pro-social behaviour, helping other people. And this typically finds that selfless actions actually repay you in the long run in unexpected ways. So pro-social behaviour typically does improve success in the long term. However, number one, in the short term, you'll likely underperform. Ethical behaviour doesn't pay off in the short term. And also, even in the long term, purposeful behaviour doesn't always pay off. Right? It would just be naive to think that always doing the right thing will help you and reward you in, in traditional ways. But again, I think it's useful to think about this because um, if indeed the goal of your career is to serve by giving trusted advice, right, then you're just going to have different benchmarks from other people, run different races, and be comfortable with that. So um, I, I heard this most starkly by, by a poem that I heard from uh, actually a football manager. So football is one of the most unforgiving um, disciplines, right? Because there's results. And if you don't get those results, it doesn't matter how purposeful you were in developing young talent, you will be fired. And so this manager was a guy called Nigel Adkins, who at the time was the manager of, of Southampton, who got, he got promoted to the Premier League, um, taking them up from two, two divisions. And he was interviewed on the BBC as to how he's able to just keep sane when his job might be on the line if he lost a few games. And he read this poem called The Man in the Glass by Del Wimbro. And so let's just read some e extracts. When you get what you want in your struggle for self and the world makes you king for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear to the end. And, if you've, and you've passed your most difficult, dangerous test if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. You might think, well, well that's just a poem, right? How can we actually put this in, into practice? And again, let me try to give you some, some concrete examples. Again, the things I'm saying might sound sort of lofty and idealistic, but I do think these are things that we can practice. Well, in reality, things will go wrong at work. You won't get the promotions that you deserve. You might not get the clients that you deserve. You gave a great pitch, but the client just gives it to somebody who happened to be his or her friend. 
So how do you respond to these, these difficult situations? Well, I think if you go back to the idea that the person who counts is the man in the glass or the woman in the glass yourself, then you're not so much a slave to whether you're rewarded. And you might think, well, isn't that unrealistic, right? Isn't it arrogant to think that I'm my own boss? Because if I'm not getting clients, then I'm just going to go out of business. But again, let me give you an example. So even though I got tenure in, in the end, it was actually a, a very rocky process. So the one year before my tenure decision, you have your review, uh, and I was told the chance of you getting tenure is significantly less than 50%, and it could be even zero at this point. So at that time, I had 11 publications. Normally, you need five or six to get tenure. So I thought this is hugely unjust. It just so happened that there was a student coming to my office um, about an hour after that, that review. And I just told him what happened. And he said, oh, look at all your teaching awards. And he said, I said, well, that doesn't matter because I'm not going to get tenure. Because tenure is based purely on research. Teaching does not count. And so I said, like, this doesn't count at all. And he said, no. Every award here represents 300 students who were transformed by your teaching. I remember that, and I thought, yes. And I knew, right, when I decided to put a lot of effort into teaching, that teaching was not going to enter tenure. Wharton was upfront with me from day one that this was not a criterion, yet I still chose to put a lot of effort into teaching just because I cared about it. And so even in that situation where I, I could well have been fired, Right, I realized that what, what I chose to devote my time to was not single-mindedly to get tenure, but I just love teaching students. I think this also helps in terms of like the comparison mentality, which I alluded to in the idea of running a different race, is that if we think about just the extrinsic rewards, it's really easy to compare yourself to other people. And if you're doing worse, then either feel envious or hard done by, or, or, or feel a, a failure and not as successful. But again, if we think about sort of the purpose behind the career and the fact that the race might be different, then there's no sort of comparison, there's no competition. It's not that we're fighting to get a fixed pie from each other, right? We're not actually competing in, in, in the same battlefield. So going back to my own purpose being the creation and dissemination of knowledge or the rigorous, the use of research to influence the practice of business, there will be people way more successful than me at this, right? I could go home after this and look and find other people with way more publications than me and maybe some better selling sort of books or more viewed talks. But I don't need to get embarrassed or, or, or feel envious about this because them being better doesn't make me any worse, right? If my goal is the creation and dissemination of knowledge, I'm happy that they've got some great research. I quote their research in my talks. I did so in the last lecture series. I write about them on my blog. I don't need to compete with them because if I'm truly driven, if my race is the creation and dissemination of knowledge, not to be the number one professor in the world by, by publications, then that's actually something where there's no competition there. So the third idea is to be proactive, is to proactively practice purpose, is once you've thought about the purpose of your job, how we can actually then start to try to put this in, into practice. So going back to the example of, of, of the, the, the tenure case, where I had that one-year review at Wharton, uh, one year before tenure, and it was so negative. And I, I was so tempted to think, this is really unjust. Look, I've got twice the publications that you need. Um, let me just uh, complain and moan about this. The day after I had that negative review, I was teaching at what they called Wharton Welcome Weekend. So there, what they have is any student who has an offer 
to do their MBA at Wharton will come and visit and they will use that to choose Wharton versus Harvard versus Stanford. And it was really nice that I, I'd been selected ahead of time by the students to, um, to, to do this presentation. And I was so tempted just to not try to give a, a lukewarm presentation and to be angry with Wharton. But I chose no, I chose, well, let me be proactive, right? I do love teaching students and I put more effort into that presentation than anything else, got a huge amount of fulfillment from that and that was a proactive way in which I could sort of address the frustrations that I had with what I thought might be an unjust decision. And even now at London Business School, right, not everything I, I like. So there's many things that frustrated me. Uh, and there was a particular sort of dark moment where I, I was frustrated by many things. And I thought, well, why did I become a professor to begin with? Well, I, I love interacting. I love teaching with students. So, well, why am I happy? Well, maybe because I'm not doing that. How can I do change this, well, let me just initiate the things that I like. So what I then started was a, a, a um, student drinks series where the final lecture I give is actually on personal purpose. It's basically much of this lecture. And then students afterwards are interested in talking to me about this more. And so what I did is I set up a, 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 a set of student drinks where students could talk about this uh, on, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And then another thing that I'm really passionate about is, is health and, 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 and um, physical fitness. And I thought, well, let me ask for a budget where I can take my students to a boot camp and actually um, introduce them into to physical fitness. That will be the topic of my fourth lecture. So here was, again, a case in which, well, let me think about what I do like about the job, why I chose this job to begin with, and let's see, well, how can I be proactive about those things? Well, what happens, maybe you think, well, that's something that you can do with your senior. But what happens if you're at a more junior level and you're given a lot of mundane tasks to do? Well, I would still say in these mundane tasks, you can still proactively pursue purpose. Again, let me make this concrete with a few examples. So when I was the most junior first year analyst at Morgan Stanley, one of some of the jobs that you get will be really boring tasks. So they might be to take um, some presentations and just go to the airport to give them to a managing director. So you're, you're, there's the print room, right? So the print room produ produces these books. Normally, you would send a courier to um, deliver them somewhere. But because this was so important and these books needed to go to the European head of capital markets, they sent me to take the books and, and meet the um, managing director, the, the head of capital markets at Heathrow Airport. So on the one hand, that's a really mundane task. Right? I'm just being treated as a courier, wasting one hour of my time to go to Heathrow and then back to Canary Wharf. But, well, one of the, I didn't come up with this myself, so I'm not to be credited for it, but one of my fellow analysts said to me, Alex, don't, don't just do that. Right, when you give the books to the guy, Frank, say to Frank, can I have five minutes of your time? Can I spend five minutes just to go through the pitch book to you? And, to, and, and so I spent five minutes saying, oh, this is what this analysis says, this is the point of this slide, and this is the conclusion that we reached. And so that, was, that transformed what was a, a mundane task into something that was really fulfilling. Going back to purpose, right? If what I'm trying to do is to help clients with their difficult decisions, here, by giving Frank this little bit of prep, that meant that when he then read through the book, maybe on the flight, he was much more prepared and able to advise the client much better. Another situation was one of my fellow analysts um, in the um, in, in my second year. He was asked to produce, to, to um, print out all the equity research reports on a company and put it on the managing director's desk. So what did he do? He printed out all the equity research reports and put it on the managing director's desk. And the managing director was, was really angry with him. He said, 
You shouldn't have just done that. What you should have also done is read through the equity research reports and written a couple of paragraphs summarising for me the main themes. And that would have made it a much more interesting job, right? So rather than just printing this and, and seeing yourself as, as just a, a print person, actually to read through these tasks and then, then to learn about this and then to have the task of, of, of summarising this for the boss, that's something which is probably would have taken the analyst half an hour to do, but would have been much more fulfilling would indeed help in terms of the general purpose of informing that the boss in a way that he would then help out his clients. And so even in something as mundane as this, the idea of being proactive, how can we actively make the lives of our superiors easier, that would have transformed what was a mundane task into something more fulfilling. So we often know this, this story of David and Goliath, and we think about this as a hero story where David kills Goliath. But what people don't often th think about is the fact that before David killed Goliath, he killed a lion and a bear when he was on the mountainside caring after his sheep. So caring for sheep is a really boring task, right? So shepherds back in those days had, had a really low status, but it was in the lonely and the quiet and the boring place, caring for sheep, that David was able to get the skills to kill Goliath. And indeed, in the lonely and boring and quiet jobs, the ones such as taking books to the airport just to deliver them to the boss or to print out these equity research reports, those are things which could indeed be seen as, as great training uh, for much more um, glamorous and, and much more um, important tasks later. I like to that is the idea of, of being curious and having a hunger for learn. So um, the global head of Morgan Stanley when I joined was a guy called Simon Roby. He's now Sir Simon Roby, who's um, got his own boutique, Roby Warshaw. And he said the one thing he looks for most from young people is curiosity. So when asked, uh, given something to do, right, to think about, well, why are we doing things this way? Maybe there might be a better way to do things. And also to view every task as an opportunity to learn, even those two mundane tasks that I just used as examples. And what I often tell students is that view your first job after Wharton or London Business School as another degree, but as one where you get paid for rather than you, you, you having to pay large tuition fees for. Is that where can you best learn after um, your university? And maybe if you stop learning, maybe then that's the time actually to, to do something different. And that's partly for me why I've now moved towards a much more practitioner focus rather than just an academic focus. Is that like I know now how to write academic papers and publish them in journals. That process has been something I've been doing for many, many years. And so when I get papers accepted or even rejected, I don't really feel anything because this is just what I'm used to. So what I've just done over the last years is write a book. Now that book could fail. Right? I've never written a book before. I don't know whether I'll be good at it. Right? But that uncertainty means that there's that process of learning. So if it indeed succeeds or fails, that will be something exciting. And if it fails, I will have learned from that experience. So that's why I chose to do something different. Okay, I've got two more points, but I want to allow time for Q&A. So I'm just going to end on, on this slide and then, and then open it. And this might seem the most obvious, but I think is, is really critical. It's just to put purpose before profit. Because if you're thinking about having a purposeful career, if purpose is to have any meaning at all, it must lead you to making different decisions from what the decisions you would make without a purpose. So again, let's give you some examples. So let's say go back to the idea 
of a trusted advisor. So let's say, oh, I wanted to go become the managing director of Goldman Sachs in order to help clients with their biggest problems, tell them not what they want to hear, but tell them the advice that's going to be best for them. Now, that shouldn't just be something that you say at interview in order to get the job, but it's something that you should still truly practice even when you're somebody very senior. There might well be times where the client comes to you with a transaction and you might say, well, actually, this is not the best transaction to do at this time, even though it's something which will give you a fee. And it may well be, sometimes, um, sometimes people say, well, we need to do what the client wants. So even if the client wants to do this massive merger, even though I know that this merger is not going to create any value, we have to do it anyway, because that's what the client wants. But that is rationalizing what they're doing. And as I mentioned in the last lecture, the word rationalize, break that up, that's to tell yourself rational lies. Right? You could lie to yourself and say, okay, that's what the client wants. But if you truly said, well, I want to do this job because I'm a trusted advisor, that involves telling people not what they want to hear. Go back to the study group, you might tell somebody, you're not pulling your weight on this project, you're arriving late to all the group meetings. So it might be cases in which you tell the client, actually, do not um, do the deal, even though this seems to be what you want. And this is indeed what my boss did. So when I was at Morgan Stanley, there's a guy called w William Chalmers, who's now the CFO of Lloyd's, but he was um, my boss in my second year. And um, we were advising Abbey National. And uh, they wanted to sell Porterbrook, the train leasing company, and they held what's known as a beauty contest or a bake-off, where different investment banks go to Abbey National and say why we are the best bank to hire. And William said, we are not the best bank to hire. Don't hire us, actually don't hire anybody, because now is not the right time to sell Porterbrook because you're not gonna get a good price in today's market conditions. And actually the client Abbey National listened to William on this and, and didn't give him the deal, and, or anybody the deal. But then a few years later, Santander came along and made a takeover bid for Abbey National. And remembering that William gave the trusted advice, they said, let's give the entire defense mandate to you, Morgan Stanley, because we know that you're a trusted advisor. Now, not every story works out like this. But as I said, even in the long term, pro-social behavior doesn't always pay off. But this is just an example of what it means to put it into practice and just to actually truly be a trusted advisor is to turn down some deals. And then if we think about the idea of, of tribalism, right? if you truly like to be part of a team and head up a team because you like to see your associates or vice presidents give part of a talk and, and, and crush a pitch, right? how many opportunities do you give other people to step up? Again, that might seem a nonsensical decision. Sometimes if it's an important meeting to allow a junior person to, to, to do part of that, you might want to wait until they're ready. But as Lemony Snicket said, if you wait until you're ready, you're always going to be waiting. So it might involve, in some of these cases, by allowing people who are junior to step up and take on some challenges before they're ready, if indeed part of your purpose is to develop your, your team, your tribe, if you're an investor, not just in companies, but in other people. Okay, that's all that I have time for because I want to allow for questions, um, so I, I've skipped a number of things. But if you're interested in reading more of this, as I alluded to, um, I just wrote a book called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Most of this is on purposeful companies and purposeful investing, but there's a chapter at the end which is devoted to personal purpose, so that might be a, a valuable resource for those who are interested in, in, in this further. Thank you very much for, to everybody for their attention. I, I'm really happy to, to take questions now.